This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm talking to Mike Rather, author of Fly Fisher's Guide to Northwest Montana's Mountain Lakes. All right, welcome to episode number 22 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today I am talking about a subject that I never knew I was interested in, but found out shortly into this conversation that uh, it's something I definitely want to give a try at some point, and that is using pack goats to access hard-to-reach areas to fly fish. Uh, Mike Rather is the author of a guidebook to fly fishing some of Montana's alpine lakes, and when he told me that, I was already interested, but then he threw out the idea of talking about some other topics and one of those he threw out was pack goats. And I knew pretty much nothing about pack goats, so I was intrigued. And once we started talking about it, I could not get enough of his stories and information. Um, and as much as I don't mind carrying a little bit of weight in to go fishing, uh, the idea of having a pack of goats do the work for me and also keep me some company is pretty intriguing. Uh, so we get into you know how he uses his goat in the backcountry and the behavior, some funny stories, things like that, and then also uh, what it's like to have a goat around the house as well. So even if you've never thought about using pack goats before, I think you'll really enjoy this one. I had a lot of fun talking to Mike, and I actually plan on having him on again soon because this is just such a fun conversation, and he had plenty of other topics that I'm now very interested in based on this conversation. So without further ado, here is my chat with Mike Rather. All right, perfect. Uh, I usually just start off by asking you a little bit about how you got a start in fishing. Oh, well, I've, uh, I got my start in fishing before I can even hardly remember my start in fishing. And my <laughs> dad used to take us, uh, my, my brother and I, my little brother and I, trout fishing on lakes and whatnot. He wasn't a fly fisherman, but we uh, would rent a boat. You could rent a boat in those days and go row around the lake and catch lots of fish. So. Uh, I, I found out later that my dad never, the night before he took us fishing, because we got we got an early start, he would never go to bed. He'd just stay up because he was afraid he wouldn't be able to wake up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered why he was so tired after we were done fishing. I mean, I know he did a lot of the rowing, but still, you know. So how early were you guys getting out? Oh, 4 a.m. Okay. And, and what, were, what were you fishing for? And where did you grow up, by the way? I grew up in uh, Washington State and, and North Seattle, basically, and then moved to a town called Snohomish, about 30 miles north of Seattle. Okay. Uh, and where we were fishing was just uh, just for trout on lakes. Okay. And was that just on spin gear, I assume? Oh, yeah. Yeah, trolling, basically. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I feel like that's how a lot of us got our start. You know, I did, it didn't the fly fishing didn't come until much later for for most of us at least. Uh, how did you how did you transition over to fly fishing? Well, a friend of mine introduced me to it when I was still living in Washington State. He, he asked me if I'd never ever done it before, and I said no, I hadn't. And so uh, he introduced me to it, and, and I liked it. Uh, we could there wasn't any fish to catch, hard, hard, hardly over there, but. Uh, I still enjoyed it, and I ended up, I thought, well, then I'm going to make this happen a little bit better, and I built my first fly rod and uh, caught my first fish on it, but uh, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I was hooked from the first fish, I think. I was hooked better than he was hooked, but uh, I was casting. I, I saw a trout just kind of working along the lily pads. I was at a boat launch, uh, fishing off an old boat launch, and uh, this fish was, was picking something off the water. I couldn't tell what it was. He's kind of cruising the lily pads. And I just had a royal wolf on, so I thought, well, what the heck, you know, so I cast out where I figured he was going to be heading next, you know, mm. uh, pattern him a little bit, and, and by golly, he ate it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that was a lot of fun, but other than that, they're really, you know, as far as stream fishing is concerned, we, it wasn't any good, and, and our lakes, where our mountain lakes were pretty much fished out, so. Uh, I actually didn't do much fly fishing over there because it just you know, it was more of an exercise of futility until I moved to Montana and then I really got into it. Mm. You know, isn't that funny how, how I feel like most people when they first try fly fishing, the first time they catch a fish, they kind of surprise themselves. <laughs> Even though they know what they're supposed to be doing, it's still a little bit shocking the first time it actually works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. So it sounds like you, were, you started building rods before you actually put a line in the water. Well, yeah, as far as fly fishing is concerned, yeah, because he introduced me to it, and I tried it a little bit with his rod, and I thought, well, you know what, I need a decent rod. One of my pet peeves is that, well, I had a guy come into fly shop uh, last year with a friend of his, and he was going to take his friend out and teach him how to fly fish, and he said, well, let's, let's, what, what are they hitting, you know, that kind of thing, the, the question you always get, mm -hmm. and uh, so I sold him some flies, and I said, well, let me tell you, tell, let me, let me ask you about your outfit, so he told me, he had to, just, I don't remember what it was, but it's a super outfit, probably a thousand dollars with a fly rod free online. And uh, I said, well, what, what do you got for your buddy here? And he, he just had an old cheapo rod, you know, and I said, I got an idea for you. And he said, what's that? And I said, you give him your rod and you fish with his. <laughs> oh, no way, no way. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my pet peeve is that we, you know, we somebody wants to fly fish and so, you know, we get them a $50 outfit or something and, and then they don't stick with it and we wonder why. Well, you know, you ever tried to cast a, uh, a fly with a telephone pole and house wire fly line. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't work. So, well, you know, what's funny is that if, you know, if you've got a lot of experience, you can probably make a $50 rod work just fine. But if you're, you know, just getting started, uh, as much as I always say, you know, it doesn't take a thousand bucks to get started. You can, you can get started with, you know, a rod you buy down at Walmart, but it's going to be a lot easier for the person without a lot of skill to use that expensive rod you know, well, and actually catch something. Whereas the guy who has a lot of skill can probably make, make that kind of crappy setup work for the day without much of a problem. That's true. That's true. But you want to start them off right if you can, especially if you're trying to convert them to fly fishing. So, mm -hmm. so what did you get started on? Did you, did you uh, kind of get the, the nice setup right away? Well, I bought, I built, excuse me, I built my first rod. So it was a Fenwick blank. And in those days it was all fiberglass, carbon, carbon fiber, hadn't even been thought of yet. So I bought a Fenwick blank and then the rod and, or, or the, you know, the rod blank and then the handle and all that stuff and found out how to do it and, and uh, put it together and it worked really good. It's just sound weight, you know, nothing real fancy, just some scientific anglers line and, and an old Fluger medalist reel. I, somebody once told me you don't have to have a good reel because these fish aren't big. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, that's what I've heard that uh, like once you get into some of the, the bigger species, like if you're going for saltwater, like the reel suddenly matters a lot more. But for trout, it kind of just sits there holding the line for you. It doesn't need to do much. Yeah, <laughs> mostly. Yeah, but it depends on where you're fishing. We Our rivers mm -hmm. and lakes got some pretty big trout in them. So, I mean, if we're fishing the lakes, then they're all going to run, you know, 10, 12 inches or so. And, and they're not going to take line generally. But uh, the rivers, you know, for exact, for example, the Clark Fork rivers, just I can almost throw a rock and hit it from here. And there are some fish that go five or six pounds in that river. Boy, you better have a good drag. <laughs> and did it, so, did you keep up with the with the rod building or get into fly tying? Like, did you like that kind of creative aspect of fly fishing as well? I've got I've done some rod building, but I never really got into fly uh, fly tying per se. Uh, flies are pretty inexpensive. 
Mm -hmm. And, you know, you want to make sure you're using, uh, you know, good flies, but at the same time, you know, they're just, I don't, I guess the reason I never got into fly fishing was somebody told me don't ever start because you'll never stop. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You you see the people who get really, really into fly tying and some of them just like stop fishing. They don't, they don't even care about that part anymore. They just want to tie the flies. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I got enough hobbies that depend on being outside anyway that I don't need more hobbies that are going to take me away from being outside. So Sure. I kind of feel the same way about fly tie. I mean, I, I do tie occasionally, um, but I, I just built my first rod recently. And I have to say, I, I liked it more than fly tying. And I think for me, it was, I like sticking with something for a bit and then seeing a, like an end result and, and having that satisfaction of, you know, having put in quite a few hours to build it. And I think flies are too fleeting for me. Like I, you know, I can churn out a couple in, in just a couple minutes and it, I don't get the same reward having finished a fly as I did having finished a fly rod. Right. Well, there's a certain, there's a certain romance with tying your own flies and then catching mm-hmm. fish on them. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty rewarding. But to me, it's the same reward that you'll get with you build your own fly rod too. You know, mm-hmm. I, wow, I built this rod and it works pretty good. And yeah. Yeah. You can load it out to people and they won't lose it. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> So then what, what took you, because I know we're going to be talking a lot about like the backcountry today, but um, what kind of drew you from, you know, your fishing roots to kind of wanting to get a little farther off the beaten path and, and do more into the backcountry? Well, I started in Montana over in, in north central Montana, and I was there for a couple of years, and then I moved over here to where I live now in St. Regis, and there's a number of fly shops here. So I thought, well, I'm going to take a trip down to the local outfitter and see what's going on because I, I pulled out a map and I looked at the map and I went, I saw all those Alpine jewels, you know, most of them a three mile hike or so. It just, uh, so I went down and I said, Hey Joe, uh, and the fly, the fly guy, I said, Hey, hey Joe, what are, what about these mountain lakes? And he says, well, what about them? And I says, well, does anybody fish them? Ah, oh, no, no, we all go to the river. Well, nobody fishes these mountain lakes. Are they any good? Oh yeah, they're great. But you know, we all go to the river cause they're bigger fish. So I said to myself, well, self, we're going to go to the lakes. And I did, and hardly anybody went, and and I uh, caught lots of fish, and it was just a good time. So I, that's how I got hooked on the backcountry thing. And I've always liked to camp anyway, so I just combined the two. Mm-hmm. So have you, have you kind of stuck with that? Is that? Would you say that's your kind of like niche within the fly fishing world is trying to get way out away from people? Well, yeah, I mean, I like people fine, but in smaller doses, I don't like to look down the river and see a drift boat behind me and look up ahead and see another one, you know. Sure, yeah, I feel the same way. It's it's just a different feeling when you could, you feel like someone's kind of breathing over your shoulder. Right, yeah, and I meet a lot of guys that, well, who's who launched today? Where'd they launch from, you know? Like, they don't want to be behind anybody because they figure they've already caught the fish or something. I don't know. <laughs> feels kind of like an assembly line at that point. Yeah, yeah. So do you, uh, do you primarily, I know you wrote, so I guess I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but, um, I guess I'll, I'll save that for, for down the road, but do you, uh, still primarily like the lakes more or do you also do like a lot of backcountry river stuff? Primarily, uh, still water, you know, okay. I really, I'm really fond of the lakes. It's just, it's just, uh, I, maybe it goes back to when I was a kid. I mean, my dad took us fishing, took us to a lake and we rented a boat and we went out and there was nobody around and. That was pretty cool. So, you know, being still water is, and I like, you know, I, I like river fishing and stream fishing and stuff. And I still do some of that, a lot of it actually. But uh, as soon as the mountain lakes open up, I'm heading up in the hills. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty different experience. And I think a lot of people hit lakes like farther into their fishing career. Uh, but there's such a great place to learn too, because you don't have to worry about reading the water really. I mean, you do have to kind of read where a fish might be in the lake and and still work your way around it and everything sure. but you know it's just such a great place to take beginners too and i feel like it you know a lot of people get kind of thrown into it you know on a river and they're trying to learn how to cast and how to read the water and how to understand fish behavior and all this stuff at the same time um when you can take a lot of that out of the equation by just going to a lake and now um it's a lot more feasible for someone to go out for their first time and probably actually you know reel in a couple fish yeah, I was talking to somebody a while back and they said, well, I don't, I don't really fish still water. I just don't know how to do it. I've never done it. Well, I'm kind of like, wow, this is really a no brainer. You know, I mean, if you get a dozen flies and, and a decent rod and you're willing to, to put in some time on your feet, by, you know, it's, it's not hard. It's not rocket science. You're not going to catch a, like anything really big generally. And once in a while you get something nice, but generally they're smaller fish, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and I always go back and forth on that because I kind of agree with you, but I, I wonder if maybe my experience is different from some people because 
um, I hear a lot, I hear podcasts, I read articles, I read books um, that talk about kind of the technical aspects of still water fishing. Um, and it's often, you know, a lot more technical than what I've had to do um, to catch fish in most of the alpine lakes here in Colorado. Um, from my experience, I haven't had to do much more than take a handful of generic dry flies uh, up and just cast them out. And at some point during the day, they're going to they're gonna feed on whatever I throw. Uh, but I, it seems to differ from what I hear a lot of other people talking about, which is a lot of more technical. You're using indicators, really long leaders, um, fishing like mostly chronomids under the surface. Right. Um, and yeah. I don't know if, if maybe I just have lucked out where I've gone, but I've never required much. Uh, I don't want to say effort because most of the efforts in getting to the place I want to fish. It's usually pretty easy once I get up there. Have you have you experienced the same thing? I have, yeah. The fish are pretty cooperative. I mean, you know, it can get technical at times, but generally, it's it's just uh, just pretty easy. I mean, they're going to eat just about whatever you want to throw at them. I mean, we're talking fish that spend nine nine months out of the year under ice, you know, and they're hungry. Right. It could be more of a challenge if you if you're fishing a mesotrophic lake, you know, where there's a lot of weed growth and so on and so forth. There's a lot of a lot of places for bugs to hide and a lot of places for bugs to breed, but uh, but uh, it, they're generally still going to be hungry. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of them just see so many uh, or so few anglers that uh, you don't you don't have to worry about like the spooky fish aspect. You know, they're they're not that concerned that you're there. Um, they haven't seen a lot of flies before, so you're not you're not trying to um, I don't know trick a fish that has seen it a thousand times. You know, you're right, right. you're trying to trick a fish that really just wants to eat, and that's all it's focusing on. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've caught as many as fifty fish in a couple hours fishing. You know, and of course, catch mm-hmm. and release, but still just one right after another it almost gets boring so. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into writing about fly fishing well i started i started writing when i was back in washington state i, I actually I, I took somebody up on the dare actually it was a, it was a weekly newspaper and uh I, I and there was a daily newspaper that came out of everett washington that, that had an outdoor guy that wrote re- regularly and i liked his articles and i thought they were pretty good and so i called up the the local newspaper, the, the weekly, you know, and I said, hey, what you guys need is somebody that can do this for you. You know, call it, oh, the county was Snohomish County, so we could call it Snohomish County Outdoors. Why don't you guys do something like that? I think it'd be good. And he said, the editor says, fine, do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a dare, you know, kind of like, you know, yeah, yeah, shut up, go away, you know. But I did. I submitted a couple of samples and they said, okay, you're on. And so I wrote a weekly, a weekly article for over a year, I guess it was. And then they also published a, a magazine, and if people would watch from Washington State would remember this, Fishing Holes Magazine. And I wrote regularly for them for a couple of years until they changed ownership. So. And so at this point, were you were you choosing what you wrote about, or were you kind of getting assignments from them? Both, basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that just transitioned over to, uh, you said you blog as well. Um, is that just kind of a fun hobby for you, uh, kind of using the skills that you got writing for these magazines and newspapers or um do you actually kind of do that as a side business well i actually just it's just kind of fun you know it's kind of a not really a side business i mean i make some money at it but it's not really most writers don't make a living full time <laughs> at it <laughs> you know most of them just don't so it's a lot of fun and it and uh, it allows me uh, you know an avenue uh, an avenue for expression and uh, helps me help other people too which i really enjoy i, I really uh, I think I have more fun watching people catch fish and teaching them to catch fish and actually fishing myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a common sentiment amongst, uh, especially fishermen that have been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. It's like it, it's at some point you've you've caught, you know, there's only so many 10-inch fish you can catch before it doesn't really feel that exciting anymore. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really fun to watch someone catch their first 10-inch fish because exactly. you know, they couldn't, they couldn't yeah. be more excited. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, anyway, there from there, I just uh, transitioned. Well, I moved to Montana, and then I didn't do any writing for for quite some time. And then I thought, well, I just I really need to get back into it. It's a lot of fun. And so there's a magazine here in Montana called Montana Outdoors. It's you may have seen it. It's won national awards and so on and so forth. So I did some writing for them and and uh, some other magazines like uh, Northwest Fly Fishing Magazine. I've written for them, and uh, it just it's just a lot of fun, you know. So mm-hmm. that's why I do it, just basically for fun, for entertainment, and to help other people. So how did that transition over to your book? Which let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, I haven't read it, but uh, why don't you talk about, you know, how you got into it and what it's about? Basically, like what it covers. Just run the gamut of of the book. 
Well, actually, I uh, I got a call from the publisher, Wilderness uh, Adventures Press, here in in Montana, and uh, they say they're 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 the largest book publisher in Montana, which isn't saying too much. We got barely got a million people, okay? So, <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds good, you know. It sounds good. so. Anyway, he says, "Well, what? I'd like to write. We've seen some of the stuff you've written, you know, in magazines and so on and so forth. I'd like to write. How'd you like to write a book for us?" And I said, well, I don't know, you know, like how? Like, well, fly fishing mountain lakes. And well, you know, our lakes are pretty brushy around the edge and, you know, it can be pretty tough to fish if, unless, you, unless you get out on the water, you know, or do a little bit of wade fishing or something. And he said, well, uh, get a boat. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm old. <laughs> so <laughs> I can't carry all that stuff, you know, carry a backpack boat and camping equipment and, you know, all that stuff. I said, I just can't do it. And he said, well, then get a pack boat. And uh, well, yeah, I've heard of those before, and I thought about that, so I did, and the, that, that's how the book got written. Uh, me and the pack goat, the dog, just headed up to a bunch of lakes and fished and wrote about it, because that's what he said. He said, "Well, you're going to go anyway, aren't you?" Uh, to, the, to the mountain lakes. And I said, "Well, yeah." He said, "Well, then just go there and write about it and take pictures." Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it turned out being a whole lot more work than I thought it would. I enjoyed. I think I don't know if I want another. I don't know if I want to write another book. I think it just writing for magazines and newspapers is you know it just as a hobby thing has has kept me pretty busy. So, and writing a book is uh, oh man, it it took three summers. Somebody yes. came up. Somebody asked my wife once, Katie. He says, "Well, you know what 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 qualifies him as a fishing guide to write a fishing guide? You know, fly fishing lakes." He's not a guide, is he? Well, no. Well, then what qualifies him? She says, well, he spent three summers living in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that qualifies him. <laughs> I mean, that's at the end of the day, I feel like what qualifies a guide to share information is just their their, their amount of time on the water compared to the average person because they're out there every day. So, sure. you know, at the end of the day, if you're out there the same amount of time, you're essentially just as qualified. You're just not showing others how to do that yet and that's that's kind of what the book is at that point is is your way of sharing your information which you know a guide might be sharing face to face on a on a trip um but you're just kind of condensing your knowledge into a piece of writing versus sharing it sharing it to your guests yeah exactly and you know i as far as guiding is concerned i've been asked to guide you know to do some guiding but you know i, I work in a fly shop part-time and they don't care if I bring my computer and write, you know, in between customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, it's air, it's air conditioned. <laughs> <laughs> and that river, it's 100 degrees on that river for 12-hour days. I just really don't want to do that. So I just passed on that and said, I'll just continue to do what I'm doing. So did you ever do any writing out in the like while you were on these trips? Would you bring oh, something yeah. along to, to do any writing? I would, yeah. And would that be by hand? You just write it down uh, in a no, notebook just, or something? Uh, no, I bring my, I got a little laptop, so I have a little okay. iPad, so I could bring that. It's got a little keyboard on it, so I can bring that and make a few notes and so on and so forth. So, But I do take a notepad as well, because I don't always pack that with me. I mean, I might be on a long hike, and I'm just uh, begrudging every ounce, you know how that is. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, no, I, I generally don't bring that. So is it unusual for the publisher to come to somebody asking them to write a book versus um, the, you know, aspiring author to be seeking a publisher? Yeah, normally it's the other way around. Uh, I think what what really makes the difference is, is if you've got some kind of platform. Okay. You know, like for example, you, you've written for some magazines and magazines are pretty easy to break into. You know, uh, most magazines that are looking for, most magazines are looking for good writers, or, you know, and so they'll publish a set of writer's guidelines and uh, just follow them, you know, and, and query them and, and tell them, I'd like to write an article about this. Would you be interested? You know, and this is who I am, and and you know, mention your platform, and and generally that that gets you that gets you in. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, it yeah, it's not too tough to break into, really. You know, and once you built a platform, you know, through blogging or writing or social media or whatever you're doing, podcast for example, then they will tend to come to you sometimes, or at least it makes it a whole lot easier. You know, I've got an article coming out uh, in this summer with distinctly Montana magazine here in Montana and uh, they want an article on go packing and so I just said you know this is what I would propose and they said okay and uh, I said by the way this is who I am and just mentioned well like the query I sent to you you know I've written in person magazines and newspapers and 
and, and you know this is this is this is what qualifies me to write to write for you mm-hmm. and generally they'll come back if they like it and say okay let's let's see it and then you're going to write something on spec <laughs> and send it in <laughs> Uh, but that worked out pretty well. I did an article for Montana Outdoors a while back, and, and their writers' guide guidelines said they want uh, they want you to write a third person, you know, uh, newspaper style, you know. So okay, you know. So I wrote the article that way and submitted it, and the call, the publisher called me back and said, No, 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 no. He said, You're the expert, obviously. So I want you to write this first person. So you get some opportunities like that. So. Yeah, I think it's easier for both parties when, you know, you already have kind of a body of a body of work because um, either they can find you and reach out to you or, you know, at least if you come to them, you've got something to show them. Uh, I feel like it's just hard to, you know, if someone says, I want to write for you, you can't just really take a risk on that without seeing that the person has, you know, is qualified to do so. Well, most publishers in the writing world, or most editors, they're gonna they're gonna hit social media. They're you know, this age of computers, they're gonna go, okay, does the guy blog? Does he have a platform? Is he on social media? You know, what's he written? So on and so forth. And the blog just gets sampled. For me, it's samples of writing, and so they go, okay, the guy can write and uh, writes entertaining stuff. So you know, I, I think I'd like to take a chance on him. So you just submit something, and they like it or they don't. But anyway, um, that's about all there is to it. I mean, it's not. It's not real easy, but that's the first thing editors do. Does he have a platform? You know, has he or is he just new? Mm-hmm. But even being new, you know, if you're if you query write and write a query letter the way it's supposed to be written, and uh, you know, follow the rules and do what you're supposed to do, then they go, okay, this guy, you know, he may not be real experienced or anything, but uh, he or she is uh, is knowledgeable and they can write, and so I'm gonna take a chance on it because they're not risking anything. Yeah, go ahead and send me an article on spec, you know. Right, it's not like you're not going to lose anything. No, right, yeah. So, what all you cover in the book? Is it uh, is it more stories or how to? What what what's the general content of it? The first half of the book, or the first part of the book, is how tos. Okay. You know, and it, it approaches it uh, like basically uh, having never done this before. For example, you know, it talks about tackle requirements and uh, backcountry navigation and. Uh, you know, how to choose the right pack and what to put in it and, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and then and then does it transition over to um, kind of some of your experiences? Yeah, then basically it, it becomes a, uh, a guidebook. In other words, I'm going to go to a, you're, you're going to look up a certain lake. You, you think you might want to fish a certain lake. And so you're going to look it up and say, okay, this guy's been there. This is how to get there. This is what the trail looks like. You know, and uh, this is whether are there camping spots there, and what are they like, and what am I going to catch, and what should I use, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> How much would you say? I know the book is is about fly fishing Montana and lakes specifically, but how much of it do you think would translate over to other areas a- apart from the actual? You know, here's a specific location and the camping nearby, but the actual techniques and things like that. How much of that do you think would translate over to other areas or other styles of of water or fishing oh quite a bit i think you know one of the chapters is called nuts and bolts like i say the first portion of the book is just uh backcountry navigation and how to put in your pack and what about bears and mm-hmm. you know all those kinds of things so what kind of fish are you, you know, what, are you going to cook them because is it okay to cook them is it okay to keep them once in a while and cook it or you know uh, backcountry behavior how to behave yourself and then, in fact i just did a blog entry about that uh, <laughs> about you know just pick up your trash pick up other people's trash you know Luckily in Montana, we don't have much. I can imagine being the same way in Colorado too. You know, the lakes aren't visited that much for one thing. For another thing, people respect them. I don't see much trash up there. You know, it's it's. I noticed that there is a direct correlation between how hard someone's willing to work to get somewhere and how much they're also willing to pick up their trash. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we've got we're we're overflowing with people here in Colorado, so it's not unusual to hike ten miles back somewhere and still find somebody. But you're not going to find a beer can. Uh, right. from that person because you know if they care enough to get that far back they probably care enough to pack out what they packed in but if i go you know 10 minutes away to the river along the highway it is just a dump oh yeah yeah you know? exactly and and i also find that uh the people who drink bud light tend to litter more than the people who drink craft beer <laughs> i don't know what it is but the bud light people like to throw their cans <laughs> you know i went up to a particular lake uh it's only about a mile and a half hike and uh, I, I went up and it's just a beautiful little lake and 
the guy that was with me cut a really nice cut bow, about 17 inches. So all the rest of them were smallish, but I mean, we had a really good time. But what really floored me is I looked around and here's, you know, there's a fire ring there and somebody has tried to burn a couple cans of chili, you know, empty <laughs> cans. And you could tell it was chili because they hadn't burned all the label off. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, if you're going to pack in canned goods full, at least you can pack them out empty. Right, you're still losing <laughs> a bunch of weight. Yeah, and, and you know, and it, what really fried me too is it was some empty water bottles, you know, and I'm kind of like, geez, the thing might weigh a gram empty. Can't you just take that out? You know? Right. So. It also just makes you wonder what they were thinking when they were packing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, obviously it's an easy hike. And that particular part of Montana too, I'm surprised to see anything up there because it was that's very, very remote, but anyway. Mm-hmm. You sometimes you see something way out in the middle of nowhere and you, it, it kind of like, you know, obviously, you know, that people have been there before, but sometimes when you're that far out, and you're not seeing anybody. It's, it's nice to convince yourself that you're like the first person that's been there. And yeah. it kind of, you know, yanks you out of that mindset when you suddenly come across some can or something out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Like you might even be off a trail and it just reminds you like how, how many people actually get out that far sometimes. Uh, some of our lakes here, well, most all of our, almost all of our lakes here in Montana, mountain lakes, were were planted at one time or another because there's just no, they just can't get in, the trout can't get into them, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, originally they were planted with, uh, you know, people in panniers on your back and packing fingerlings, and then they did fixed air, uh, fixed wing aircraft, you know, planes and stuff. But it's really kind of hard to swoop in and out <laughs> those mountain yeah. lakes. So then they went to helicopter planting and, and they're doing that. But a lot of them have been maintained by Montana Fish Wildlife Parks in their natural state. And I've been to some of those and you don't see, I mean, you can imagine that you are the only person that's been there for many, many years because most people are going there to fish, you know. You mean yeah. the ones that don't have fish? Yeah. Like you get up there because no one, no one has a reason to go? No one has a reason to go. Yeah. I mean, with so many lakes here in Montana, I mean, there's just hundreds, thousands of them, you know, so if it doesn't have fish, I mean, usually I would get on Montana Fish Wildlife Park's website and find out what's been planted, when it was planted, uh, you know, and, and so on. So you just get a lot of information about it before I go. And one, one lake in particular, I didn't do that for whatever reason, you know, and I hiked up to this lake and it was only about a mile cross country. And I thought, boy, I'm going to knock them dead cross country, no trails. And I got up there and there was no evidence of any, no footprints or anything, you know. And I blew up my little, my little boat, went out and fished a little bit. And I was catching anything, I wasn't seeing anything coming up, and I wasn't seeing any, any fish in the water. I went, something's wrong here. So I just packed up and left. And then I, then I got on the website and looked, and it was barren. That lake had never been planted. Ah. But boy, it was a nice experience. I mean, you could just imagine that, uh, like you say, you nobody else had been there for years and probably hadn't been. Yeah, you can. I feel like you can kind of tell that too. I mean, there's, there's places where I feel like I should be the only person, uh, you know, within miles. And either you see somebody or you see just like a, a firing that's been recently used. And it's mm-hmm. just, it's just like a little daunting. Cause it's, it's weird to think that, you know, for some of the trips that I've done is you're working so hard during it that and sometimes you're like, I can't imagine that anyone else is crazy enough to do this right now. <laughs> uh, I think you're like, you know what? There's pro- probably someone here last week. And that's just, it's on one hand, it can be a little bit, I don't want to say frustrating, um, but you kind of think like, oh man, like I thought, I thought I had really gotten out here away from people. But then on the other, on the other, on the other hand, you're like, you know what? It's really nice that there are yeah, other people out there who, you know, maybe I'll meet somebody who has done this hike and that we can connect about it because sure. like you, you know, instantly that you'd be friends if you met that person. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a whole different class of people. And I don't, you know, I don't want to get into that or anything, but generally people, because some of them throw their trash around, like I said, but generally it's, it's a different class of people up there, you know, and they're pretty friendly and, and uh, it's just a joy to fish with them when you see them. And a lot of times I don't see anybody. Yeah. I think those are always the best trips. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. But then again, that's why I go there is for the solitude, you know? So. So let's transition over to the pack goats because that's something I have absolutely no experience with. Um, and you threw that as a suggestion and I was like, you know what, this, this is my opportunity to learn. Um, so it sounds like you got the goat because, because of the writing, like, is that right? You had to, you kind of had to get it because you were, you're being uh, coerced into doing the book. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, my backpack boat, uh, some Dave, Dave Scadden makes some nice light ones for backpacking. And so I got one of his and, and the pack that it that it's carried in 
and uh, the oars and, you know, my tackle and so on and so forth. It's like 25 pounds. So this is an actual boat, not like a float oh, yeah. tube. Oh, no, it's not a float tube. It is. Okay. You actually row it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's more like a pontoon boat. It's kind of a hybrid okay. pontoon boat. But uh, so you're not, you're not in the water or anything like that. I mean, you're up out of the water. You can get wet getting in. But, you know, after that, you're you're up out of the water. So. But, it, but how I got into it, like I said, is the guy said, well, then get a pack boat. So I got the boat and it only weighed 25 pounds. And I thought, well, I can handle that, you know. And so, uh, so I got a goat, I got a pack goat and I did some investigation, some research on it. And because uh, he'd suggested it, you know, and I, like I said, I'd heard about it. And so I got the goat and then I, I bought the panniers and stuff. And goats are really cheap. I mean, people just about give them to you. But you've <laughs> got to have, nobody wants them. But boy, do they have some real advantages. You know, I, number one, you want a big one. You, you're not going to get with these little miniature goats or anything. They can't carry any weight to speak of. So I've got, a, I've got, there's three breeds actually that work really good for, for pack goats. One of them is a Sonnen and they were raised in the Swiss Alps. Uh, and he weighs 160 pounds and a good pack goat, a big pack goat will go 200, 225. Wow. That is, that's a lot larger than I was picturing. I think maybe I'm picturing like you're one of the middle little petting zoo yeah. goat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No, he's, 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 he's as big as a deer, you know, as big as a mule deer. So, and he's, he, he's got his own cross buck, you know, I put that on him and a pannier on each side and, and I carry the boat and the tackle and he carries the camera equipment and food and tent and sleeping bag and everything else. So how much can one of these things carry? About 25% of their body weight, which is about, you know, about the same as us with us. So he, he could pack, you know, about 40 pounds. Okay. And is he carrying his own feed and stuff or does he just eat what, whatever he finds up there? Yeah, that's one of the big one of the big uh, advantages of pack goats. You don't have to pack any food for them because they eat everything except for tin cans. They don't eat tin cans, <laughs> unfortunately. They, they will nibble on your shirt tail <laughs> to see if it's just to see if it's edible. One, Monday, mine tried to eat a plastic flower that didn't work. He got in the garage for some reason, found some plastic flowers. Well, that's understandable. Out, that didn't work. But, but they don't. You don't have to shoe them. You don't have to trim their hoofs as long as you're hiking off enough. Their hoofs wear down pretty fast. Uh, like I said, they just about eat anything. They don't buck. They don't bite. Um, they're environmentally, environmentally friendly. I mean, you know, they leave a track like a deer, you mm -hmm. know, and they're dropping. Somebody would be thrilled. Oh, it must've been a deer walk through here. No, it was my goat. Okay. <laughs> and the food doesn't have to be top quality. They don't drink much water. You know, they can go a couple of days without drinking water. They, the dry camps don't bother them much. Um, uh, the packing equipment is expensive, you know, but, uh, they're incredibly sure footed. You know, they didn't go places that we would not go. That's for sure. So uh, what is the equipment that they take to pack? Well, uh, got, like what do you what do you put on them? Just just basically it's like what a mule would use or a horse and you get a pack saddle. OK. You know, that, that sits on him and, and then you know, strap that down and then the pannier on each side, these soft sided panniers and the panniers on each side, stuff and full of your stuff. And away you go. They follow like big dogs. They're easy to, they're easy. You don't have a, you don't have a stock trailer either. You know, you put them in the back of a pickup. You know, I've got a little half ton trailer that I've got some extended high, higher sides. So, so they can't jump out. So he can't jump out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, but basically they're, they're just easy to care for. You know, they don't have that, they don't take much room. And like I said, they follow you like a big dog. I mean, I keep mine on the lead if there's other people around, because if I'm going uphill, he's like, they're going downhill. I'm going with them. And so <laughs> it just turns around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, and they want to stop and take pictures, you know, so and those kinds of things. I had a, <laughs> I was heading up to one lake. Actually, it was the same lake that I went to that was fishless. And I was, it, the road was pretty rough, pretty nasty. And so I was going pretty slow. So I was following my little trailer. And I noticed behind me, there was a forest service truck. And I thought, well, I better pull over and let him by, you know. So I pulled over alongside the road. He pulled up alongside me and he stopped and he rolled down the window. He says, I got to ask. I said, well, go ahead. He said, what's with the goat? <laughs> so, I said, it's my pack goat. No, really? Yeah. And that's what I told him about it. He'd never heard of that before. And then I, I called up somebody with uh, uh, Fish Wildlife Parks. I think it was up way up in Northwest Montana. And, and I introduced myself and I was looking for information, you know, whatever information I could get. And I mentioned my pack goat. And he said, oh, yeah, we've heard about your pack goat. We know all about you. So, <laughs> word spreads fast. Word spreads fast. Yeah. So, I think you already mentioned a couple. Of the, I was gonna get to this, but I think a couple of the things you've already said have have kind of answered it. But just in case there's anything else, um, what are the benefits of a pack goat versus something like a horse or an alpaca or a llama? I know you said that um, 
you know, you don't have to shoe them and things like that. But are, are there any other like really obvious benefits? Um, obviously, besides things like it's a lot smaller than a horse. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you can ride a horse. I assume you can't ride the goat. Not unless you're a very, very small person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think some of the advantages over mules and horse or, or horses and mules and, and llamas. Llamas are a lot bigger. It can be a little bit more difficult to handle. I mean, a llama can be a couple hundred pounds easily. They could pack a lot, a lot more weight, but they might go two, three hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're not very nice animals. You know, they'll yeah, stay. I've I've <laughs> noticed that they <laughs> yeah. they don't really like you. They just no, they they're just like there. <laughs> no, no, does the goat like, like you? Like, does the goat? Is oh, the goat yeah. ha- happy to be there and, and pretty amicable the whole time? Oh, yeah. He's quite affectionate, actually. Oh. <laughs> He's, you, know, you don't want to let him in your tent, though. I, I took him <laughs> a couple of years ago because then they, they, once you teach them, because they're smart. They're very smart. So I took my goat uh, elk hunting to a backpacking trip with a friend of mine. And uh, we, you, this is the place where you could drive in and set up your wall tent, and then they, then they lock the gate, and then you hike in about three miles to your camp. So anyway, I told my friend, I told Clint, I says, I'm going to bring my goat. And of course, he'd never heard of it before. So I explained it. And he said, oh, okay, we'll give it a try. I'll try anything once, that kind of deal. And uh, up in this particular part uh, of the country, it gets very, very cold. I mean, you can hit 20 below. And, and that's and Sonnens are pretty good about that. They were raised in the Swiss Alps. I mean, they can take the cold. They can't take the heat, but they can take the cold. And so I got up there, and, and we've got this tent set up. Got two tents. One of them's a cook tent, one of them's a sleeping tent. So it gets down, and you're looking at the thermometer, it gets down around 15 below or so, and, and my buddy Clint says, why don't you bring him inside? Bring him inside. I said, oh, no, no, you can't, you can't housebreak a goat. You know, I, I, no, it's not a good idea, Clint. Oh, come on, come on, come on. I said, all right, all right, I'll let him inside. You know, so I let him inside, and I woke up about 2 a.m. in the middle of the night, and I thought, you know, I really need to take that goat outside. It was too late. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, unbeknownst to me, but now we taught him how to get in tents, you know. They learn quick. He, he's so, living the good life now. Oh, yeah. So we woke up a, a couple nights later. We woke up, pap, bang, crash, bang. And Clint grabbed his rifle and says, we got a bear. We got a bear. You know, he goes roaring into the cook tent. And there's Grover in there. He's leveled the table, you know, and he's just che- checking everything out, seeing what's edible and what isn't, you know. That dog on goat, I almost shot him. <laughs> <laughs> so I took him home after that and then came back. <laughs> he kind of wore out his welcome. Because once you teach, once they know they can get the tent, that's it, you know. They, they, that's what they want from then on. Yeah. But I can let him loose, you know, and I, if I'm by myself and there's nobody else around, you know, I let him loose and he wanders around camp. He doesn't go anywhere. He just wanders around camp and has a little bite of this, a little bite of that. Their browsers like deer are, so they're very easy on things. Do you, you leave know, him untied at night too? No, I tie him up, yeah. I tie him up. I, well, yeah, I, I tie him up because anyway, he might get scared and run off if we do get an animal coming to in the camp or something. Yeah, have you ever had but, any issues with bears or anything? No, never have. But I practice bear aware camping. There's a whole book in the a whole chapter in the book about that, and I've never had any problems uh, with bears. But then again, I'm really careful with my stuff. You know, waterproof bags and my my foodstuffs are always bagged and, and those kinds of things i went up uh <clears throat> a friend of mine asked me one time he went hiking with me there's a new backpacker and he says aren't you worried when you set up camp and everything he says aren't you worried about bears and i said no i'm not worried about bears at all why not i said i got i got two burglar alarms what do you mean burglar alarms i got the goat i guess i got three actually i got the goat i got the dog and i got you so <laughs> i'm gonna sleep like a baby <laughs> so you usually bring a dog with you too yeah, I've got a little a little dog that goes backpacking. She packs all her own food and stuff. Okay, that, that's that's pretty fun. Yeah, and she goes in the boat with me. She likes to go. And so when you're out on the boat, you that's I assume at that point you just let the goat wander. No, I tie him up because he's okay. He's, he's, he's hollers at me. Hey, hey, you forgot something. Hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> once, once you give the goat a taste of the boat, he'll be wanting to join you there too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, you can let him wander around camp, and in, in the morning, you know, I usually let him loose, and he'll wander around and have breakfast. You know, and you can always tell when he's full when he's full because then he'll come back to camp and he wants to see what's in the pack and see what's in the tent, and you know, they're very curious. You know, so that that's it. Game over. You got tied up again. You know, so. It sounds like they have a bit more of a personality than some of the other pack animals I think of. Oh, they really do. They're they're full of personality. I had I let him out of his he's a little house with a pen and stuff. So I let I don't let him wander around here. He wouldn't go anywhere. But we have wolves around here and stuff. So I don't want to let him wander uh, away off the property. So I keep him in his house. But the other day I had him I hadn't had him out for a while, and uh, I let him out and he's he's jumping around and acting like a like a kid, you know. 
And then he wanted to butt me a little bit. I thought, and he doesn't have horns, but he wanted to butt me and play around. I thought, you idiot, you know, you forgot who's the king goat here. <laughs> so I grabbed him and flopped him down on his side and laid on him. And that's, what you, <laughs> that's what you do, you know. And then he stopped, and they stopped struggling. You get off and you're king goat again, you know. So after that, he followed right along and behaved himself perfectly. So, oh, I forgot. <laughs> they so, almost sound a bit like a dog. They really are, yeah. As a matter of fact, their intelligence level is about the same as a dog. Really? Yeah. You're, you're making me want to get a goat, just a pet oh, goat. Oh, you should. <laughs> there was a guy in Wyoming that the father of the father of goat packing, modern goat packing, is, uh, oh, what's his name? It's on my shelf. I can't see it from here. Um, but he, it's just titled The Pack Goat. Somebody was in C or something like that is his name. But he had a contract with the Forest Service. He lives down in Wyoming. He had a contract with the Forest Service. And he was raising goats for, you know, for milk and that kind of thing. And he had a contract with the Forest Service. He's packing all this equipment in. And this is the old days where that, you know, nothing was computerized. And so he packed and this stuff weighed, you know, a lot of weight. I mean, a big backpack full of, full of, you know, gear and stuff. Because he had a contract to go in and check this and check that and so on and so forth. And one day he got to look at his, one of his goats and he says, I wonder, you know. So he made a crossbuck for it. And the goat started packing and didn't seem to mind at all. And so he made a whole string of pack goats. Yeah, that was actually going to be one of my other questions is, uh, it sounds like you use just one. Is that is that typical? Um, or do people often have a couple of them that they take up? Usually people will have at least two. It's not a good idea to have one goat. I had two for a while, but goats grow on you. I mean, they kind of like, once you get one goat, then you want a million of them. So, cause they're <laughs> so cool. You know, so I got another goat and he was a, he was a different breed and, and he was, he was a Nubian and Nubians are really sturdy little goats. You know, they are really muscular, but they, they their, their cry sounds like a, their bleat sounds like a baby crying and they're very, very vocal. And <laughs> like, this is not going to work. <laughs> not going to work at all. Whereas the son is very, very quiet. So anyway, I got rid of him. I found somebody wanted him. So I got rid of him. So I've got the one goat, but you really shouldn't keep one because they're, they are herd animals. So generally people will, you know, keep, at least two and if you're goat packing if you want a string well by golly you know if you've got three or four of them you're packing a couple hundred couple hundred pounds worth of stuff in you know yeah it sounds like it's probably not that much more work to have two than to have one like if, you, if no. you're already leading one and you have the other one tied to that one yep. uh and they feed themselves then it it doesn't really sound like adding more goats you know equals more work nope it doesn't not at all because huh? they just follow each other along because one guy is the i mean i'm the king goat you know so mm-hmm. the other goat will follow him because they, 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 they establish a pecking order. For goats, it's all about life in the herd and eating and sleeping. That's all they do. Sounds like a good life. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, so, but, but anyway, they, they, don't, uh, they don't like to be alone, but he doesn't seem to mind it too much if I go out and spend some time with him every day. At least he, say, he hasn't complained about it. So. <laughs> but yeah, so, if you get, most, most people want a string. And like I say, if you, you can carry three goats in the back of a pickup. You know, just put some high sides on it so they can't jump out. Mm-hmm. So. Does he mow your lawn for you? Yeah, he does. <laughs> we've talked about just getting like a you know any any old goat, uh, and we've we've sadly found out that they're not allowed in our neighborhood. But we're still dreaming someday we'll have one, uh, just in the hopes that we'll, we can get rid of the lawnmower and just have the goat take care of the yard for us. Yeah, it's interesting they're not allowed there. Usually, a lot of people in cities keep them and they keep them in the backyard, a fence backyard. Yeah, there's some neighborhoods near us that allow them. We're allowed bees and chickens, but I guess a goat yeah. just uh, crossed the line for our neighborhood, no, unfortunately. They don't. People don't know goats real well, and if they if they knew them, then they would they wouldn't care because they're really the the only thing about them is they are escape artists, you know. Oh, so really? Sure, you yeah, they're pretty they're smart. You don't ever want to let them see you unlatch the gate. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> but but why do they try to escape? It sounds like they're they're just you know kind of attached to you. Oh, okay, just because they're bored do. and yeah. I mean, the grass is always greener on the other side, so sure. you know he's he's going to stick his head through the through the cattle panel and eat some grass on the other side he's got plenty of grass growing in where he's at but you know it's always i can't i can't reach that i gotta have the, it's just like people you know mm-hmm. grass is always greener so so he might let himself out just to go nibble something else you know he really likes ponderosa pine leaves oh really they have a lot of ponderosa pine around here and they're actually good for him too he's a weather but you want to make sure that if you get one you either get a doe if you, if you like goat's milk you can do a doe uh or get a weather a weather's a castrated male they don't smell like a goat okay yeah. So, so does it, it sounds like, uh, you have other uses for a goat besides just the packing. Like you can, you can milk the same goat that you're using to pack. Yeah. 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 It's John Bazinski. I think that's his name, but he talks about that too. Cause he had those. He says, if you like, if you like goat's milk, you can, 
you know, have fresh milk in camp. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty interesting. That sounds like a yeah. nice benefit. Mm-hmm. What's the care like at home? Oh, gee, I go out and feed him in the morning and give him a flake of hay and spend a little time with him. And then at night I go out and give him some fresh water because they only need to be watered about once a day. So just go out and give him some fresh water and I might give him a carrot for a treat and spend a little time with him and, and that's it. But I assume it's not nearly as much work as, as having like a horse or something like oh, that. Oh, not at all. No. I mean, his pen's very small. Not near as, they don't, they don't, you know, like I said, you don't have to shoe him, so you don't have to worry about him throwing a shoe. You know, you see people up in the woods with horses and there's a lot of romance with horses, you know, riding a horse and leading them. But usually you got to have two horses. One is packing the food for both horses. Then you got to worry about if they're going to throw a shoe, you know, and they're spooky. Horses are kind of spooky. So, yeah, the romance also dies when you're out there shoveling manure. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. Um, Do you have any good stories from from your three years out there with the goat and just packing around in in the Montana wilderness? Uh, Let me think for a second. Oh, yeah, he's always with me. So. Any goat-specific stories of, uh, I don't know, any, any funny stories or anything like that? Just this, the, you know, the one about getting in the tent. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and the dog, the dog is the goat's boss, you know. So if I holler, if his name, the goat's name is Grover. So if I holler at Grover, hey, get out of there, you know. Then she'll, yeah, get out of there. Woof, 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 woof. Get out. Didn't you hear what he said? Get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> so do the dog and the goat get along pretty well? Quite well, yeah. Okay. I get I think, like you said, it, it sounds kind of just like a, a dog that has more capabilities, but I wasn't sure if the dog would be kind of thrown off by the fact that the goat is, you know, obviously different. No, the, the only thing that confuses a dog is, is, is goats will do a, a bow, you know, they'll, you know, like they're going to butt you, they'll bow down and show, show you their horns or their t- the top, top of their head or something. You mm-hmm. know? So, and for a dog, that's a play bow. You know how dogs will bow down and play. To, come yeah, play, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, goat, the goat's. The dog interprets that as a play bow. They're lowering their head, you know. Oh, it wants to play. No, I don't want to play. (laughs) (laughs) Once once the dog learns that that's not a play bow, it goes a lot better. Now, goats are generally afraid of dogs, but they do get dogs. They do get used to dogs pretty quick. So is it is it that they're kind of uh, skittish around dogs just because dogs kind of have the I don't know they have that appearance and they have kind of that herding instinct, but the the goats can get used to you know a a specific dog that they know. Yeah, they do get used to them really quick. But, you know, dogs are predators. And so they, they like, a, like a wolf, you know, I mean, they see that dog, they think predator. But, you know, goats are pretty good about, as far as stories are concerned, they're, they're pretty good about defending themselves, especially if you get a horned goat, you know, I mean, because they, they don't, if they're attacked by a predator, they generally won't run. I mean, they'll run a little ways, they up, get up at some high ground, and then they'll turn around and lower their head and say, okay, bring it. <laughs> so they're not, lion, they're not too scared then. No, a mountain lion goes, I think I'll look for some easier prey. Yeah, something that's not willing to defend itself. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's kind of a nice feature. Will they, uh, will they like make noise if there's a, a problem around camp? Yeah, I put a bell on him. Okay. So, so you know, if I keep that on him in the middle of the night, so if he's, I can keep my ears out for that bell. So if he moves around a lot, other than just, you know, wanting to get a little snack or something or re, re, rearrange himself. But if he moves around a lot, then that that's that's an alarm. You know, that tells me there's something going on out there. He's not comfortable. Now, do the females have horns too? Or is that just a yeah. male? Okay. Yeah, they, they both have horns. And you said yours does not though? No, he's been dehorned. They call it disbudding. No, why, why do you do that? Well, because the first thing people want to do when they see a horned goat is grab the hor- goat by the horns. It's really? a handle. <laughs> it seems like, yeah, most people, it's a handle. You know, oh, there's a handle. This goat has its own handle. Cool. <laughs> no, no, that's, once a goat, once you do that to a goat, he goes, aha, now I can, now I can spear people. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but the only thing is you don't want to keep horned goats with, with goats that have been dehorned because they can't really defend themselves that well. Yeah, not an even playing field at that point. Yeah, it's not an even playing field. Yeah. Well, I think you've convinced me to get a goat. I'm going to have to move somewhere where I can have one. There you and go. <laughs> it it kind of sounds like it really does sound like the best of all worlds because, like we mentioned before, you know, we love the idea of just like riding a horse off into the sunset and, mm-hmm. you know, having something to carry, like that you can ride that can carry that much weight. But um, having, having heard about having to deal with horses and, like you said, they can spook and you have to carry so much food in. And it just seems like there's a lot of, a lot of logistics of going to owning a horse and, and the transport and the care. And 
Uh, that that's just never seemed worth it to me. Like I would love to have a friend who has horses, but I don't think I'll ever own a horse yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> for that either. reason. It just sounds like yeah. a lot of work. Um, but I love dogs, and this just sounds like a, a dog that can kind of function like a horse at times, which yeah, just sounds like the the best of both they, worlds. <laughs> they like people. I mean, they're like I said, they're they're actually kind of they're actually affectionate though. I was I was working on something underneath a truck in the garage one day, and I still had the smaller goat, the little goat. He hadn't been trained to pack yet, but and I let them loose so they could wander around. You know, they were coming in the garage and poking around and getting into trouble. But I, I don't want to keep pent up all the time. So anyway, I'm under the truck and I'm stretched out and I feel something on my legs. And the smaller goat had climbed in on, on my legs and laid down. <laughs> <laughs> they just sound so quirky, like just little things like that. Yeah. Well, they're, as I said, though, they're. They're quite friendly. They like people. They follow along, and they just get to know their people and stuff. The only there's a few things you got to teach them. I mean, they don't like they don't like water, and so I mean, you know, if it's raining or something, they want to be under shelter. But he's used to it now. So I usually if I'm going to tie him up in camp, I'm going to tie him underneath a tree or something, you know. Or I have brought a tarp, but a lot of times he gets gets tangled up in the tarp, and then that's not good. So, so I just put him underneath the tree, and there he there he sits. Now are they so, smart enough to to follow some like commands at all? Like yeah. did okay. Yeah, well, they like, can learn their own names and stuff, you know. And and uh, there's uh, to discipline them. What the only thing, the only thing that works with a goat is water. You know, you got a squirt bottle or a squirt gun or something. If they do something they're not supposed to do, squirt them in the face. They hate it. They just hate it. Huh. You know, I wonder what that's. Water. Wonder what that instinct is. I mean, I guess most animals probably don't like being sprayed in the face with water. But I wonder yeah. what specifically about goats makes them, uh, you know. Versus water. Well, they're they're you know a desert animal originally. I mean, they came from arid countries like North Africa and you know, the Near East and so on and so forth. So, you know, they're not uh, they're not really used to water. You have to teach them how to cross streams. I, I taught Grover how to do that. You know, the first stream I came to, it's kind of like, oh no, I'm not going across that. Oh yes, you are. Well, yeah, well, I might be stronger than you. <laughs> so, so what you do is you just leave them, and they'll and find they, their way. they go, hey, they, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> There's bears out here. <laughs> so pretty soon, here they come. I took him out. Talk about stories. I took him out uh, with a friend of mine one time. And we there had been some blowdowns across the trail. And one of them was, we could get across it ourselves. But I wasn't going to unpack that goat and pick him up over that thing. I know he can get across it, you know, because I've seen him do it before. So I said, well, let's go. He's, I said, the lake's only about a quarter mile away. He said, you're going to leave your goat? And I said, well, yeah, sure. He'll find his way over that log. Really? Yeah, no problem. So we got down to the lake and pretty soon, here he comes. You can hear that bell. He comes running at it. He comes, <laughs> he comes in a running, running full tilt. You know, hey, you guys left me back there. Somehow he figured out how to get across that log. So <laughs> Thinking you just forgot him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, they don't like being left alone. So, I mean, they, they like the companionship. They're herd animals, you know. So yeah, even if there's other goats around, they want to be with the people. So does Grover know any other commands? Like, do you have a command for just like stay here or, or follow me or anything like that that, that uh, are more useful? He knows woe. Okay. You know, woe or sand, you know, those kinds of things. He doesn't need to know too much, so. Yeah, I guess if he's just following along, there's yeah, not much he'll need to do. Mm-hmm. How long do they live? About, they can pack for, about 12 years. They can pack for about 10 years, about 9 or 10 years. Okay. They generally have to be about 3 years old before they can pack. And is that just for a size thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they have to, they t- it takes about 3 years for them to mature enough. But that doesn't mean you can't, you know, put a cross buck on them or, and let him carry that around and get used to it. You know, and they got used to the lead. You know, he knows how to lead and those kinds of things. And he's not supposed to eat on the trail either. You know, Why is that? Me. Because he'll stop and eat and then you got to get him going again. Okay. You know, he's not supposed to do that. But he's gotten really good at grabbing a leaf on the run. <laughs> just just sneak one behind you and yeah, you're not looking. Yeah. I'm not looking, so snatch. You know? <laughs> so is that, if, if you're just like, if you stay on the move, are they pretty, are they more inclined to follow you than they are to stop to eat? Is it just if you come to a stop for too long, they'll start to graze? Oh, yeah. They, they, if you stop, it's time to eat. Okay. So you just got to kind of keep keep moving and they'll keep following you. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, man, I, I'm i I'm excited to, to look into these goats because we have a truck and, and – Plenty of stuff to carry. So, hold, hold on just a second. I'm gonna. I can't. I can't reach up there with my earbuds in, but I'm gonna reach up my bookshelf. Hold on just a second. I'll, I've got a book up there. I want to introduce you to. Okay. Okay, Katie. I'm back. It's just called the Pack Goat. The Pack Goat. Is, the Pack Goat is written by John, and I'll give you his last name. I'll just spell it because I don't think I can even pronounce it. 
All right. It's M-I-O-N-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. Woo, that's a mouthful. Yeah, like that's a lot of consonants in a row. <laughs> and uh, but he's and then there's there's not much out there really. I mean, there was another book that some another book on my shelf too that somebody uh, wrote uh, and self-published it. It's just a wire, wire bound kind of thing. But there's not much out there really. I that's, actually I'm in the middle of writing a book. It's it, it's just a humor piece. It's called My Life as a Pack Goat. Yeah. From the point of view of a pack goat? Yeah, from, from Grover's <laughs> view. Yeah. Well, one thing about them, you talk about commands. I was going to mention this. You can't teach a goat no. It just does what it wants. It does. It, 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 no, you can say no, and, and their noses are real sensitive because they're almost prehensile. You know, so if you say no and give them a little swat on the nose, you know, that works for a couple of minutes. And then it, no doesn't mean no to a goat. It means not right now. Wait a minute. Try it again. <laughs> Just hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> I'm sure that's kind of what makes them charming too, though. I, I mean, it sounds like you're, <clears throat> excuse me, you're kind of trading in um, a little bit of stubbornness, but you're getting, uh, you're getting the personality. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which I think yeah. I think that would I think that would be a worthwhile trade in my opinion. Like if I if I had a goat out there, I think I'd want one that has a bit of a more more of a personality. I'd, I'd like to feel like I've got a companion on the trail, not just a robot that's carrying my stuff for me. So they, John tells a story too about a friend of his. No, it wasn't wasn't he was uh, fly fisher. His friend had a uh, you know it's a guy has he died from Lou Gehrig's here a number of years ago. I can't remember his name. He lives in Montana or lived in Montana. But anyway, he talked about how a friend that had a pack goat. And he said that pack goat actually protected them both from mountain lion. Really? Yeah, because it was a horn goat, you know, and uh, it got between them and the between the mountain lion and them. I mean, you know, and, and drove the mountain lion off. So, so not just warning them, but actually, like actually physically protecting them from it. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yep. From something that I feel like, in all other ways, seems pretty pretty solidly a prey animal. Yeah. Really. Awesome. Well, Mike, do you, do you want to just share uh, where people can find your book or, or any of your articles or on social media or anything like that? Oh, sure. Well, they can get to my, they can go to my blog, of course. My, my Facebook is just pretty much family and stuff. It's not very interesting to most people. It's just, it gives me a way to keep in touch with all my kids and grandkids and great grands and all those, you know? Sure. So, but anyway, as far as the book is concerned, I do write for my blog pretty regular. It's called Life Under a Big Sky. Okay. And it's actually, uh, it's actually under MikeRather.com. Uh, but uh, that's you can find it either way, and okay. uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter too. So that, and then uh, the book is published by Wilderness Adventures Press uh, here in uh, in Montana, um, and you can get it from them. You can you can just about get it anywhere. I think Amazon's got it, and a lot of outdoor places have it. So, all right, uh, perfect. Well, I'll link to it as well if, if anyone wants to just uh, follow the link to go find it. Yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I learned a lot, and um, like I said, got to be uh, looking into goats in the future. Oh, you should. They're just a <laughs> kick. <laughs> They're a kick. You know, I got one more story for you. I got sure. I, I was, Go actually, I was coming back in the same trip when I pulled over for the Forest Service truck. I was coming back, and, and there was some road work on the highway, and there was a flagger flagger gal out there, and and uh, she flagged me to a stop, <clears throat> and I was at the front of the line. And so we had to wait for a while for equipment, so on and so forth. So she wandered off a little bit. She went back and looked in the trailer. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then she came back and said, you taking your goat for a ride? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, that's my pack goat. What's a pack goat? And there, that allowed me a perfect opportunity. I'm sure you have to answer that question a lot. <laughs> well, you do when you see people on the trail. You know, I saw somebody on a trail once. They hiked up the lake before I did, and I was hiking up. They were hiking, they were hiking out. And they said, we were wondering what that deal was with that goat, you know, in the back of the trailer there, you know. But you get, when you, you got to be prepared. If you use a pack goat, you have to be prepared to stop and talk to people about it. Um, I actually printed up a little flyer I just give to people. Because <laughs> 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 they want to stop, take pictures and so on and so forth. The older generation, like my generation, they go, oh, we're all about horses. What, what is that? What's with that goat, you know? And uh, the younger generation, though, Man, I've heard about this. Wow, this is cool. Tell me about this, you know. So they respond more like yourself. They're just, they're not so you know, all stuck in their ways and a horse is the only way to do it. You know? Sure. Yeah, I mean, if I, if I came across a goat on the trail, I'd be stopping to ask questions. Sure. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Mike, for coming on. And uh, hopefully we can do another one of these down the road because I know you threw out a bunch of topics and I'm interested in all of them. So uh, oh, yeah, I'd be if, happy you're, to. if you're down to come back on, then I'd, I'd be happy to chat with you again. I'd be happy to do that, Katie. All right. Well, I'll let you get going, but uh, thanks for taking the time and hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. And that'll do it. As always, if you liked what you heard, I'd love for you to go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe there. Also, if you could give it a rating and review, that would be awesome. Um, Since I just transitioned over from the Wild Initiative, I'm still trying to get some downloads and some ratings and things. So uh, if you've got some time, it takes just a couple seconds to to rate it and review it. Um, And you can also find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I will be back here in two weeks, so I will see you all then. Bye, everyone. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country. Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.